welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey there, just me. You're about to listen to another installment of our summer series, which is going to record the entire executive summary report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Obviously, there is a content warning while engaging with this material, and we ask that you please take care. You're going to hear some different voices. Some are new, and some you've heard before. And we give a heartfelt thank you so much to everyone who rallied to record this project with us. Be sure to check the description for relevant links and page numbers, so you can actively reference the report while you're listening if need be. And without any further ado, we present to you the Executive Summary Report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Church Apologies There is an old and well-accepted adage that states it takes a village to raise a child. The removal of Aboriginal children from their villages was seen as a necessary step in the achievement of assimilation. However, not only did the Government of Canada take the children from their homes— but it also then proceeded to destroy the cultural and functional integrity of the communities from which the children came and to which they would return. Christian teachings were a fundamental aspect of residential schools. Aboriginal children were taught to reject the spiritual ways of their parents and ancestors in favor of the religions that predominated among settler societies. As their traditional ways of worshipping the Creator were disparaged and rejected, so too were the children devalued. They were not respected as human beings who were equally loved by the Creator just as they were, as First Nations, Inuit, or Métis peoples. Rather, the Christian teachers saw them as inferior humans in need of being raised up through Christianity, and tried to mold them into models of Christianity according to the racist ideas that prevailed at the time. The impact of such treatment was amplified by federal laws and policies that banned traditional Indigenous spiritual practices in the children's home communities for much of the residential school era. Spiritual violence occurs when a person is not permitted to follow her or his preferred spiritual or religious tradition, a different spiritual or religious path or practice is forced on a person, a person's spiritual or religious tradition, beliefs, or practices are demeaned or belittled, or a person is made to feel shame for practicing his or her traditional or family beliefs. There is plenty of evidence to support our conclusion that spiritual violence was common in residential schools. The effects of this spiritual violence have been profound and did not end with the schools. At the Alberta National event, survivor Theodore Ted Fontaine could have spoken for many survivors when he said, quote, I went through sexual abuse. I went through physical abuse, mental, spiritual. And I tell you, The one thing that we suffered from the most is the mental and spiritual abuse that we carried for the rest of our lives, end quote. At the Saskatchewan National Event, survivor and elder Noel Starblanket, National Chief of the National Indian Brotherhood, later the Assembly of First Nations, talked about the intergenerational spiritual impacts of the residential schools. He said, quote, My great-grandfather was the first one to be abused by these churches and by these governments, and they forced his children into an Indian residential school, and this began the legacy. They called him a pagan, a heathen, and that was in the late 1800s. So I've been living with that in my family since then. End quote. That Christians in Canada, in the name of their religion, 
inflicted serious harms on Aboriginal children, their families, and communities, was in fundamental contradiction to what they purported to be their core beliefs. For the churches to avoid repeating their failures of the past, understanding how and why they perverted Christian doctrine to justify their actions is a critical lesson to be learned from the residential school experience. Between 1986 and 1998, all four settlement agreement churches offered apologies or statements of regret, in one form or another, for their attempts to destroy Indigenous cultures, languages, spirituality, and ways of life, and, more specifically, for their involvement in residential schools. The United, Anglican, and Presbyterian churches followed similar pathways. Individuals or committees at the national level of each church became aware that there might be a need to apologize, a decision-making process was established at the highest levels of the church, and the apology was subsequently issued through the moderator or primate who spoke for the whole church. Unlike the three Protestant denominations, the Roman Catholic Church in Canada does not have a single spokesperson with authority to represent all of its many dioceses and distinct religious orders. The issuing of apologies or statements of regret was left up to each of them individually. The result has been a patchwork of apologies or statements of regret that few survivors or church members may even know exist. Roman Catholics in Canada and across the globe look to the Pope as their spiritual and moral leader. Therefore, it has been disappointing to survivors and others that the Pope has not yet made a clear and emphatic public apology in Canada for the abuses perpetrated in Catholic-run residential schools throughout the country. On April the 29th, 2009, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Phil Fontaine, four other Aboriginal leaders, and five leaders from the Roman Catholic community in Canada traveled to Rome for a private audience with Pope Benedict XVI. No recording of the private meeting was permitted, but the Vatican issued a communique describing what the Pope had said. Quote, Given the sufferings that some Indigenous children experienced in the Canadian residential school system, the Holy Father expressed his sorrow at the anguish caused by the deplorable conduct of some members of the Church, and he offered his sympathy and prayerful solidarity. His Holiness emphasized that acts of abuse cannot be tolerated in society. He prayed that all those affected would experience healing, and he encouraged First Nations people to continue to move forward with renewed hope. End quote. The media reported that National Chief Fontaine and other Aboriginal leaders who had met with the Pope said that the statement was significant for all survivors. Fontaine told CBC News that although it was not an official apology, he hoped that the Pope's statement of regret would bring closure to the issue for residential school survivors. Quote, the fact that the word apology was not used does not diminish this moment in any way, he said. This experience gives me great comfort, end quote. The Pope's statement of regret was significant to those who were present and was reported widely in the media, but it is unclear what, if any, impact it had on survivors and their families and communities who were not able to hear the Pope's words themselves. Many survivors raised the lack of a clear Catholic apology from the Vatican as evidence that the Catholic Church still had not come to terms with its own wrongdoing in residential schools and has permitted many Catholic nuns and priests to maintain that the allegations against their colleagues are false. A statement of regret that children were harmed in the schools is a far cry from a full and proper apology that takes responsibility for the harms that occurred. The Commission notes that in 2010, 
Pope Benedict XVI responded to the issue of the abuse of children in Ireland differently and more clearly when he issued a pastoral letter, a public statement that was distributed through the churches to all Catholics in Ireland. He acknowledged that the church had failed to address the issue of child abuse in Catholic institutions. He said, quote, Only by examining carefully the many elements that give rise to the present crisis can a clear-sighted diagnosis of its causes be undertaken and effective remedies be found. Certainly, among the contributing factors we can include inadequate procedures for determining the suitability of candidates for the priesthood and the religious life, insufficient human, moral, intellectual, and spiritual formation in seminaries and novitiates, a tendency in society to favor the clergy and other authority figures, and a misplaced concern for the reputation of the church and the avoidance of scandal, resulting in a failure to apply existing canonical penalties and to safeguard the dignity of every person. Urgent action is required to address these factors, which have had such tragic consequences in the lives of victims and their families, end quote. He directly addressed those who were abused as children by church clergy. Quote, your trust has been betrayed and your dignity has been violated. Many of you found that when you were courageous enough to speak of what happened to you, no one would listen. Those of you who were abused in residential institutions must have felt that there was no escape for your sufferings. It is understandable that you find it hard to forgive or be reconciled with the Church. In her name, I openly express the shame and remorse that we all feel. At the same time, I ask you not to lose hope. Speaking to you as a pastor, concerned for the good of all God's children, I humbly ask you to consider what I have said and that you will be able to find reconciliation, deep inner healing, and peace, end quote. In Canada, for more than a century, thousands of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children were subjected to spiritual, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse in Catholic-run residential schools. Other than a small private audience with Pope Benedict XVI in 2009, the Vatican has remained silent on the Roman Catholic Church's involvement in the Canadian residential school system. During the Commission's hearings, many survivors told us that they knew that the Pope had apologized to survivors of Catholic-run schools in Ireland. They wondered why no similar apology had been extended to them. They said, quote, I did not hear the Pope say to me, I am sorry. Those words are very important to me. But he didn't say that to First Nations people, end quote. Call to action. Number 58. We call upon the Pope to issue an apology to survivors, their families, and communities for the Roman Catholic Church's role in the spiritual, cultural, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children in Catholic-run residential school. We call for that apology to be similar to the 2010 apology issued to Irish victims of abuse and to occur within one year of the issuing of this report and to be delivered by the Pope in Canada. Survivors' Responses to Church Apologies Survivors made many statements to the Commission about Canada's apology, but the same cannot be said for their response to church apologies. It is striking that although survivors told us a great deal about how churches have affected their lives and how, as adults, they may or may not practice Christianity, they seldom mentioned the church's apologies or healing and reconciliation activities. This was the case even though they heard church representatives offer apologies 
at the TRC's national events. Their engagement with churches was often more informal and personal. Survivors who visited the church's archival displays in the TRC's learning places picked up copies of the apologies and talked directly with church representatives. They also had conversations with church representatives in the church's listening areas and in the public sharing circles. When the late Alvin Dixon, chair of the United Church of Canada's Indian Residential School Survivors Committee, spoke to the commission at the Northern National Event in Inuvik in 2011, he expressed what many other survivors may have thought about all the other churches' apologies. He said, quote, The apologies don't come readily. They don't come easily. And when we heard the apology in 1986, those of us First Nations members of the United Church didn't accept the apology, but we agreed to receive it and watch and wait and work with the Church to put some flesh, to put some substance to that apology. And we all believed that apologies should be words of action, words of sincerity that should mean something. Our task is to make sure that the United Church lives up to that apology in meaningful ways. You know our work is just beginning, and we're going to hold the Church's feet to the fire, other churches and Canada to make sure that this whole exercise of healing goes on for as long as it takes for us to recover from the impacts of our experiences in those residential schools. The other issue that comes up that we are addressing is having our Native spiritual practice condemned initially, not just by the United Church, but all churches. Well, we now have our church supporting Native spiritual gatherings, and we're going to host a national Native spiritual gathering in Prince Rupert this summer. So we are very much holding the church's feet to the fire and making sure that there are real commitments to putting life to the apologies. End quote. What Alvin Dixon told us is consistent with what the commission heard from survivors about Canada's apology. Official apologies made on behalf of institutions or governments may be graciously received but are also understandably viewed with some skepticism. When trust has been so badly broken, it can be restored only over time as survivors observe how churches interact with them in daily life. He explained, in practical terms, how survivors would continue to hold the churches accountable. Apologies mark only a beginning point on pathways of reconciliation. The proof of their authenticity lies in putting words into action. He emphasized how important it was to survivors that the churches not only admit that condemning Indigenous spirituality was wrong, but also that they can go one step further and actively support traditional spiritual gatherings. That action, however, calls for ongoing commitment to educate church congregations into the future on the need for such action. Call to Action Number 59 we call upon church parties to the settlement agreement to develop ongoing educational strategies to ensure that their respective congregations learn about the church's role in colonization, the history and legacy of residential schools, and why apologies to former residential school students, their families, and communities were necessary. Honoring Indigenous Spirituality Many survivors told the Commission that reconnecting with traditional Indigenous spiritual teachings and practices has been essential to their healing, with some going so far as to say, it saved my life. One survivor said, quote, The sun dances and all the other teachings, the healing lodges, sweat lodges. I know that's what's helped me keep my sanity, to keep me from breaking down and being a total basket case. That's what has helped me, the teachings of our Aboriginal culture and language, end quote. Losing the connections to their languages and cultures in the residential schools had devastating impacts on survivors, their families, and communities. Land, language, culture, and identity are inseparable from spirituality. 
All are necessary elements of a whole way of being, of living on the land as Indigenous peoples. As survivor and Anishinaabe elder Fred Kelly has explained, quote, to take the territorial lands away from a people whose very spirit is so intrinsically connected to Mother Earth was to actually dispossess them of their very soul and being. It was to destroy whole Indigenous nations, weakened by disease and separated from their traditional foods and medicines. First Nations peoples had no defense against further government encroachments on their lives. Yet they continued to abide by the terms of the treaties, trusting in the honor of the crown to no avail. They were mortally wounded in mind, body, heart, and spirit that turned them into the walking dead. Recovery would take time, and fortunately, they took their sacred traditions underground to be practiced in secret until the day of revival that would surely come. I am happy that my ancestors saw fit to bring their sacred beliefs underground when they were banned and persecuted. Because of them and the Creator, my peoples are alive, and in them I have found my answers. End quote. Jenny Blackbird, who attended the Mohawk Institute in Brantford, Ontario, explained it this way, quote, Our elders taught us that language is the soul of the nation, and the sound of our language is its cement. Anishinaabemowin gives us the ability to see our future. Anishinaabemowin gives us the ability to listen to what is going on around us and the ability to listen to what is happening inside of us. Through seeing and listening, we can harvest what we need to sustain ourselves and to secure the properties that will heal us. Ever since I can remember as a child speaking my language, it helped me to restore my inner harmony by maintaining my mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being. End quote. Spiritual fear, confusion, and conflict are the direct consequences of the violence with which traditional beliefs were stripped away from Indigenous peoples. The turmoil gives particular urgency to understanding the role of Canada's churches in effecting reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. A number of survivors spoke to us about the many contradictions they now see between their adult knowledge of Christian ethics and biblical teachings and how they were treated in the schools. These contradictions indicate the spiritual fear and confusion that so many survivors have experienced. Children who returned home from the residential schools were unable to relate to families who still spoke their traditional language and practiced traditional spirituality. Survivors who wanted to learn the spiritual teachings of their ancestors were criticized and sometimes ostracized by their own family members who were Christian and by the church. Survivors and their relatives reported that these tensions led to family breakdown. Such is the depth of this spiritual conflict. The cumulative impact of the residential schools was to deny First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples their spiritual birthright and heritage. In our view, supporting the right of Indigenous peoples to self-determination in spiritual matters must be a high priority in the reconciliation process. To be consistent with the United Nations Declaration, Indigenous peoples who were denied the right to practice and teach their own spiritual and religious beliefs and traditions must now be able to do so freely and on their own terms. For many, this is not easily done. Many survivors and their families continue to live in spiritual fear of their own traditions. Such fear is a direct result of the religious beliefs imposed on them by those who ran the residential schools. This long internalized fear has spanned several generations and is difficult to shed. It is exacerbated by the fact that Christian doctrine today 
still fails to accord full and proper respect for indigenous spiritual belief systems. If it were the survivors alone who faced this dilemma, one could argue that they should be able to resolve this for themselves in whatever way they can, including with the assistance of trusted church allies. However, the dilemma of spiritual conflict is more than a personal one to survivors. It is one that extends to their children and their grandchildren, who, in these modern times, realize that there is much more to their personal histories than what they have inherited from residential schools and Canadian society. They realize that each Indigenous nation also has its own history, and that such histories are part of who they are. Young First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people today are searching for their identities, which include their own languages and cultures. Aboriginal parents want their children raised in a community environment that provides all of this. However, there is often conflict within communities when those who have been influenced by the doctrines of the churches believe that to teach Indigenous cultural beliefs to their children is to propagate evil. There are those who continue to actively speak out against Indigenous spiritual beliefs and to block or prohibit their practice. To have a right that you are afraid to exercise is to have no right at all. The Declaration asserts that governments and other parties now have an obligation to assist Indigenous communities to restore their own spiritual belief systems and faith practices, where these have been damaged or subjected to spiritual violence through past laws, policies, and practices. No one should be told who is or how to worship their Creator. That is an individual choice, and for Indigenous peoples, it is also a collective right. However, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people need to be assured that they do indeed have the freedom to choose and that their choice will be respected. All religious denominations in Canada must respect this right, but the United, Anglican, Presbyterian, and Catholic churches, as parties to the settlement agreement, bear a particular responsibility to formally recognize Indigenous spirituality as a valid form of worship that is equal to their own. It cannot be left up to individuals in the churches to speak out when such freedom to worship is denied. Rather, the churches, as religious institutions, must affirm Indigenous spirituality in its own right. Without such formal recognition, a full and robust reconciliation will be impossible. Healing and reconciliation have a spiritual dimension that must continue to be addressed by the churches in partnership with Indigenous and spiritual leaders, survivors, their families, and communities. Many Indigenous peoples who no longer subscribe to Christian teachings have found the reclaiming of their Indigenous spirituality more important to their healing and sense of identity. Some have no desire to integrate Indigenous spirituality into Christian religious institutions. Rather, they believe that Indigenous spirituality and Western religion should coexist on separate but parallel paths. Elder Jim Dumont told the Commission about the importance of non-interference and mutual respect. He said that the, quote, abuse and the damage that has been done in residential schools, one of the primary sources of that is the church. And the church has to take ownership for that. But what bothers me about it is the church continues to have a hold on our people. Just get out of the way for a while so that we can do what we need to do, because as long as you are standing there, thinking that you are supporting us, you are actually preventing us from getting to our own truth about this and our own healing about this. But I think the other thing that's being avoided by the church is their need to reconcile with the Spirit. I think that the church has to reconcile with the Creator. 
I'm not a Christian, but I have a high regard for this spirit, who is called Jesus. What I think is that when the church can reconcile with their God and the Savior for what they've done, then maybe we can talk to them about reconciling amongst ourselves. End quote. In contrast, Aboriginal Christians who also practice Indigenous spirituality seek Indigenous and Christian spiritual and religious coexistence within the churches themselves. United Church Reverend Alf Dumont, the first speaker of the All-Native Circle Conference, said, quote, Respect is one of the greatest teachings that comes from the original people of this land. Our ancestors followed that teaching when they met with their Christian brothers and sisters so many years ago. They saw a truth and a sacredness they could not deny in Christian teachings. Many were willing to embrace these teachings and leave their traditional teachings. Some were willing to embrace the teachings but still wanted to hold their own. Some did not leave their own traditions and, when persecuted, went into hiding either deep in the mountains or deep inside themselves. Many were suspicious of the way the Christian teachings were presented and how they were lived. They were suspicious of the fact that they were asked to deny their own sacred teachings and ways and adopt only the new teachings that were given. Why could they not take what they needed from these new understandings and still live from their own? That was the understanding and teaching of holding respect for others' beliefs. It was the way of the first people. End quote. Presbyterian Reverend Margaret Mullen, Thundering Eagle Woman, put it this way quote, Can the Reverend Margaret Mullen, Thundering Eagle, woman from the Bear Clan, be a strong Anishinaabe woman and a Christian simultaneously? Yes, I can, because I do not have my feet in two different worlds, two different religions, or two different understandings of God. The two halves of me are one in the same spirit. I can learn from my grandparents, European and Indigenous Canadian, who have all walked on the same path ahead of me. I can learn from Jesus and I can learn from my elders. End quote. Each of the settlement agreement churches has wrestled with the theological challenges and necessary institutional reforms that arise with regard to Indigenous spiritual beliefs and practices. At the same time, Aboriginal church members have taken a leadership role to advocate for Indigenous perspectives and ensure that they are fully represented in the institutional structures, programs, and services of their respective churches. The General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of Canada in 2013 endorsed a report on the development of a theological framework for Aboriginal spirituality within the Church. The report noted, quote, the need for Aboriginal Christians to be true to both their Indigenous identity and to their Christian faith, end quote and concluded, among other things, that, quote, this conversation has the potential not simply to help us address our relationship as Presbyterians with Aboriginal people, it has the potential to contribute to the renewal of our church, end quote. The Anglican Church has devoted a vision for a self-governing Indigenous church to coexist within the broader institutional structure of the church. In 2001, a strategic plan called A New Agape was formally adopted by the church's general synod meeting, the plan set out a church's vision for a, quote, new relationship based on a partnership which focuses on the cultural, spiritual, social, and economic independence of Indigenous communities. To give expression to this new relationship, the Anglican Church of Canada will work primarily with Indigenous people for a truly Anglican Indigenous church in Canada. It is an important step in the overall quest for self-governance, end quote. In 2007, the Church appointed Rev. Mark MacDonald as its first Indigenous National Bishop. 
the United Church has also examined its theological foundations. In a 2006 report, Living Faithfully in the Midst of Empire, report to the 39th General Council 2006, the United Church responded to an earlier call from the World Council of Churches, quote, to reflect on the question of power and empire from a biblical and theological perspective and take a firm faith stance against hegemonic powers because all power is accountable to God, end quote. The report recommended that further work be done and a follow-up report, reviewing partnership in the context of empire, was issued in 2009. The report's theological reflection noted, quote, Our development of the partnership model was an attempt to move beyond the paternalism and colonialism of the 19th century missions. The current work to develop right relations with Aboriginal peoples is an attempt to move beyond a history of colonization and racism. This ongoing struggle to move beyond empire involves the recognition that our theology and biblical interpretation have often supported sexism, racism, colonialism, and the exploitation of creation. Theologies of empire have understood God and men as separate from and superior to women, indigenous peoples, and nature. End quote. In 2012, the executive of the General Council reported on the follow-up to the 2006 and 2009 reports on how to re-envision the Church's theological purpose and restructure its institutions by shifting from a theology of empire to a theology of partnership. The Commission asked all the Settlement Agreement churches to tell us their views on Indigenous spirituality and what steps were being taken with their respective institutions to respect Indigenous spiritual practices. In 2015, two of the Settlement Agreement churches responded to this call. On January 29, 2015, the Presbyterian Church in Canada issued a statement on Aboriginal spiritual practices. Among other things, the Church said, quote, As part of the Church's commitment to a journey of truth and reconciliation, the Presbyterian Church in Canada has learned that many facets of Aboriginal traditional spiritualities bring life and oneness with creation. Accepting this has sometimes been a challenge for the Presbyterian Church in Canada. We are now aware that there is a wide variety of Aboriginal spiritual practices, and we acknowledge that it is for our Church to continue in humility to learn the deep significance of these practices and to respect them and the Aboriginal elders who are the keepers of their traditional sacred truths. We acknowledge and respect both Aboriginal members of the Presbyterian Church in Canada who wish to bring traditional practices into their congregations and those Aboriginal members who are not comfortable or willing to do so. The Church must be a community where all are valued and respected. It is not for the Presbyterian Church in Canada to validate or invalidate Aboriginal spiritualities and practices. Our Church, however, is deeply respectful of these traditions. End quote. On February 18, 2015, the United Church of Canada issued a statement affirming other spiritual paths. The document sets out various statements and apologies made by the Church with regard to Indigenous spirituality including an expression of reconciliation at the TRC's Alberta National Event on March 27, 2014. Among other things, the Church said, quote, In humility, the Church acknowledges its complicity in the degradation of Aboriginal wisdom and spirituality and offers the following statements from its recent history. In doing so, the Church recognizes with pain that this is a complex and sensitive issue for some within Aboriginal communities of faith who, as a result of our Christianizing work and the legacy of colonialism, 
or on a journey to restore harmony and spiritual balance. We have learned that good intentions are never enough, especially when wrapped in the misguided zeal of cultural and spiritual superiority. Thus, we have learned that we were wrong to reject, discredit, and yes, even outlaw traditional Indigenous spiritual practice and ceremony. In amazing circles of grace, as we have begun to listen to the wisdom of the elders, we have found our own faith enriched and deepened. And we are grateful. We know we have a long journey ahead of us. We are committed to make that journey in humility and partnership, engaging in the healing work of making whole our own spirituality, and acknowledging that holding both your spirituality and ours is possible through listening and learning with open hearts. End quote. Unlike the Protestant churches, in which theological reflection and institutional reform have been undertaken at the national level, the Roman Catholic Church in Canada's approach to Indigenous spirituality has emphasized decision-making at the local diocesan level. However, in a submission to the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples in 1993, the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops expressed its views on Indigenous spirituality. Quote, The native spiritual voice is now finding greater resonance in the broader Christian and social worlds. Native Christianity today is marked by the development of a theology that comes from Native prayer, culture, and experience. As bishops, we have encouraged Native Catholic leaders to take increasing responsibility for the faith life of their communities. We also recognize that for some Native peoples, Christianity and Native spirituality are mutually exclusive. We are committed to responding to this belief in a spirit of dialogue and respect, and to encouraging Native peoples to join in conversation between Christianity and Native spirituality. We will continue to explore the possibility of establishing channels of communication between our own spiritual heritage and Aboriginal spiritualities, end quote. In terms of institutional reform, the Canadian Catholic Aboriginal Council, established in 1998, advises the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops on issues regarding Aboriginal peoples within the Catholic Church. The Council's mandate is to study and analyze issues related to Catholic Aboriginal spirituality and education, encourage Aboriginal leadership in the Christian community, support and promote reconciliation in the context of the Catholic reality, and serve as an important link between Aboriginal Catholics and non-Aboriginal Catholics. The Commission notes that all the settlement agreement churches have recognized the need to provide theological education and training for Aboriginal church members to take leadership positions within the churches and work in Aboriginal ministry programs. Beginning in 2007, the Church's Council on Theological Education in Canada held a series of conferences that sought to encourage and deepen the exploration of questions with respect to Indigenous and Christian beliefs and the incorporation of Indigenous cultural and spiritual practices into Christian practices. Through these events, the Council also sought to challenge post-secondary institutions to consider how best to prepare theological students for ministry in Canada, in consideration not only of Indigenous people, their culture and spirituality, but also of the need for churches to engage in healing and reconciliation between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples. The Toronto School of Theology made a public commitment to give the same academic respect to Indigenous knowledge, including traditional Indigenous spiritual teachings, as to traditions of Greek philosophy and modern science. This pledge was made at the Meeting Place, an event co-sponsored by Council Fire Native Cultural Centre and the Toronto Conference of the United Church of Canada in June of 2012. Yet, more remains to be done in education and training with regard to reconciling Indigenous spirituality and Christianity in ways that support Indigenous self-determination.
Writing in 2009, the former Archdeacon for the Anglican Church and founding member of the Indian Ecumenial Conference, Reverend John A. Ian McKenzie said, quote, Most urgently, churches need to consider opening a serious dialogue with Aboriginal theologians, doctors, and healers who represent the North American intellectual tradition. Aboriginal peoples call for recognition of the truth of past injustices and respect for their civilizations. Most of all, this is a call for respect for their traditional religious thoughts and practices. The only legitimate North American intellectual tradition comes from the diverse tribal societies in our midst. Sustainable reconciliation will only take place when every Canadian seminary includes a course on Aboriginal religious traditions, where every congregation reflects on North American intellectual tradition by initiating and inviting Aboriginal religious leaders to lead such discussions. When Aboriginal peoples achieve real self-government within their churches, and when Christian theology not only respects Aboriginal thought, but learns from it, end quote. Call to action, number 60. We call upon leaders of the church parties to the settlement agreement and all other faiths in collaboration with Indigenous spiritual leaders, survivors, schools of theology, seminaries, and other religious training centers to develop and teach curriculum for all student clergy and all clergy and staff who work in Aboriginal communities on the need to respect Indigenous spirituality in its own right, the history and legacy of residential schools and the roles of the church parties in that system, the history and legacy of religious conflict in Aboriginal families and communities, and the responsibility that churches have to mitigate such conflicts and prevent spiritual violence. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering done by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music is done by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com.